The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. The EU just announced its seventh sanctions package, which is set to put an embargo on Russian gold. Gold is Russia's largest non-energy export. The Russian government's response was to shrug it off and downplay the impact of sanctions. That's a position the Union of Gold Producers in Russia disagrees with, noting the country's gold industry may suffer irreparable damage. Author, National Post Editor-at-Large and Senior Fellow of the Atlantic Council, Diane Francis says Russia is in trouble, economically, demographically, financially, and militarily. Francis goes on to say, punitive Western sanctions as well as brain and capital drains are shredding the country's future. In an article titled To Russia with Malice, Francis states sanctions against the import of technology such as microchips have caused factories to stop making consumer products as well as weapons of war. Automobile production is down by 96.7%. Aeroflot is using spare parts from outdated aircraft to keep its fleet operating. Francis warns, don't ever fly Aeroflot. And worst of all, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of energy, nuclear, and infrastructure projects have been cancelled. I invited Diane Francis to join me for a conversation that matters about the devastating consequences of Russia's irredentism towards Ukraine and throughout the remainder of the former Soviet Union. Diane, welcome. Hi. Hi. How bad is it in Russia right now? Uh, your article to uh, Russia with Malice really paints a very bleak picture. Well, uh, you read the first uh, part of the top of it. Uh, those are the, the most salient damaging points. But, uh, you know, Russia's prestige in the world, it may think its prestige has gone up. It actually, it may have among some some uh, other players in the, in the world, but its prestige has not gone up at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, you see China staying on the sidelines pretty much. Uh, China has yet to say the invasion was a good thing. Uh, and most countries are in the same boat, except for a few who do a lot of work with uh, Russia or make a lot of money off Russia. So it, it, it's the, the shelves are emptying. But, you know, you're dealing with a country that's in a, in, in a in the grip of a dictator. And uh, to think that people will uh, rise up and overthrow him is, is, uh, is delusional. Um, he, he'll, and he's not unhealthy. These are the latest reports coming out. So hopes that he would die in office. Uh, and on the other hand, who would replace him? It may even be worse, particularly if it's Dmitry Medvedev, who is, is even more uh, strident in his hatred toward everything in the West except money and spending it. So, you know, you've got a, a situation where um, Ukraine is just like Britain was uh, at the outset of the Second World War, where the Americans were uh, furnishing it with food and money and weapons to, uh, to fortify itself against Hitler conquering all of Europe and then preparing for an invasion to push him back uh, to Germany uh, and, and you know, all the dirty work is being done by others and that's unfortunately the poor Ukrainians. And they are doing a, an incredible job um, because they're heroic and because 
this is not a war, this is genocide. He intends to wipe them off the face of the earth. What do you think happened on the sort of the Western side of the equation that we got sucked into believing that Putin wanted to be sort of a member of the League of Nations? Well, I, I think that was what everybody hoped for at the end of the Second World War. But as time goes on, we see that uh, Russia has gotten, uh, well, it, it briefly looked like it was going to be democratic when Yeltsin took over. Uh, in, in 1989, and then, of course, he was drunk the whole time he was in office. And and Putin took it, no, seriously, I interviewed him, he yeah. did a face plan over breakfast. Uh, and and Putin, Putin just took advantage and took over, and so did the entire KGB, and they turned it into a kleptocracy. In other words, they have made the country, they, they have raped the country of all its assets and wealth for themselves. And uh, they run it like a dictatorship, and they have a huge army, and they're going around causing mischief everywhere. Uh, the point is, and I've been writing about this for quite a while, uh, and that is that uh, Putin has declared Russia against war against Europe. Never mind Ukraine. He declared war against Europe, uh, and he has been doing all kinds of mischief and disruptive things, including Brexit, including backing dictators including disinformation, sabotage, poisonings, murders, assassinations, all kinds of mischief throughout Europe. But the biggest mischief he did was he bribed all the German industrialists to let him uh, make them dependent on natural gas and the rest of the continent as well. The Americans were wise to this uh, before anybody else was. And of course the Ukrainians were, but they were just struggling to get a democracy when this all happened. And um, so now you've got a situation where, as I say, you know, they're, they're the unfortunate proxy in the proxy war between Europe and, and Russia. That's who the real war is between Europe and Russia. The Americans are there, and I would say, thank goodness, because they get it, they understand um, what, what Russia has been up to and is up to. And never mind Europe, I mean, he's, He's now controlling a big chunk of Syria, uh, Russia, and parts of Africa. And, you know, this, this guy thinks he's going to build an imperial Russian empire again. And, and, uh, and he's trying to, and he, and he doesn't care what he does to do it. So what he's, what he's also uh, prepared to do, and one of his biggest ma major advantage is the fact that he has people that don't rise up against him. So he can do whatever he wants and cause them all kinds of pain. I mean, the stores will be empty of all Western goods if they aren't already. And their living standards are even worse than they are already. But they won't do anything because he's got control, which means that whatever he does uh, in the global economy to hurt the rest of us backfires on Russia, but he doesn't have to care. So he's, he's, he's about business of creating a recession global recession. Not that he would like a global recession. That's one of his big ones. I got to get you to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Well, I note that there was an agreement through Turkey to move grain out of the Ukraine here in the last couple of days. What do you think happened there that uh, Russia seems to be willing to uh, agree to the movement of that Ukrainian grain? Well, they, they say they are. I don't believe anything they say. He said he wouldn't invade. 
He said he wouldn't invade, you know, the day before he invaded. Uh, he's a liar. He does what he wants to do. He doesn't care. And, you know, he may, he may decide that he'd like to send out the message that, you know, gee, if he, this is what I think the game is. This is a Putin game. He's going to say, we agreed to the grain getting out of Ukraine. It's all been Ukraine's fault anyway, because they mined the seas. Of course, they didn't mine the seas, but if they had, no one would blame them because they were about to get invaded by Russia. But that, that part's missing. So what he's going to do is, it's, he's not going to really do anything that he agreed to. It'll fall apart and he'll blame Ukraine. He'll blame Ukraine. Right. I'm, I'm sure that the Ukrainians right now are ruining the day after the fall of the Soviet Union when they agreed to return nuclear weapons to, to Russia uh, in, in promise of never being invaded by Russia. The, it goes to show that a Russian uh, agreement means nothing. Well, you know who else signed that agreement? Britain and the United States. Yes. And they didn't, they didn't comply either. They didn't, they didn't do anything about the fact that Russia didn't go along with what all four of them agreed. And the same applies to Belarus and the same applies to Kazakhstan. And by the way, I happened to be in the Ukrainian parliament in 1994 when they were debating hotly that they shouldn't give those nuclear weapons up because Russia would do just this because they've never trusted Russia and they've always been victims of Russia, always. And so, you know, the West, Bill Clinton forced them to do it, forced them all to do it because, you know, we thought, oh, well, this would be great and it's a show of faith and, you know, the Cold War is over anyway, isn't it? And, you know, all that rubbish. And, and you know, they didn't didn't realize that that uh, the KGB was was not only still in charge, but we're going to to do what they've done. So you wrote also this week about uh, a completely or quite a different situation in Kazakhstan where the president there is demonstrating a willingness to stand up to Putin. What's the difference in Kazakhstan that at the moment they can say uh, we're not buying into this and we're fortifying ourselves as best we can even though they don't have the military to withstand an invasion from Russia? Kazakhstan is a really, really fascinating case. And that newsletter that I wrote was a world exclusive. Nobody's been following it. I just put it together from snippets of intelligence and because I read all about Eurasia. And that's what I really have a lot to do with. And, you know, what this, this fellow is doing is he's taking advantage of the fact that, you know, Russia's preoccupied. Let's face it, they're not doing well with, with the war. Uh, and it, to open up a second front, they're not going to they're not going to send a whole bunch of troops to Kazakhstan. They can't deploy that. And and Kazakhstan is not requiring any military intervention at this point. All he was doing was he he stood up to Putin on a television show personally and said, you know, I don't think your invasion of of Luhansk and Donetsk was legitimate in 2014 in 2014, and I don't think it is now whoa and you know the yeah. press went crazy and he left the show and fine and then two days later he announced that he announced to the european union we'd like to give you more oil to help you another another stab in the back to putin and of course because their oil currently goes through russia uh it was stopped immediately on, on, you know with just it was it was an excuse to stop it 
So it's a standoff. I mean, that's not going to change until they build an alternative pipeline, which is in the works. And Europe will pay for it, believe me, because they have a lot of oil and gas in, in Kazakhstan and also in their neighbor Turkmenistan. So what's different here is that Kazakhstan is gigantic and Kazakhstan is not Eastern Europe. It's different people and their, their connections are different. And so they speak a Turkic language, which is derived from Turkish. And those five Central Asian countries that I have a map of on my newsletter that uh, are, and their mother country is Turkey and their mother language is Turkey, I have a bigger population than Russia's. They are Turkic, they are not Russian. And they, they are closer to Turkey and China politically, geopolitically, and geographically than they are to, to Russia. And so he's got his hands full if he thinks that he can, you know, start to play games with Kazakhstan. I mean, he may, and he'll get away with it, but I think it would dilute his efforts in Eastern Europe and further embed him in geopolitical dislike and bring in Turkey as an enemy. Turkey has the largest military in Europe. And Turkey is a friend of Europe, and it's in NATO, and it's a European country. But I'm saying the, the ties that bind them is they all are Turkic people going back centuries. And so there is, there is kind of a, they're kind of a, shall we say, a moderate Muslim uh, culture. And it's definitely uh, something that's important. They're not Oriental, but China has paid has has invested billions of dollars in Kazakhstan. Guess why? Oil and gas and, and uranium. <laughs> oil and gas and uranium, and they built this gigantic 8,000 kilometer railway system of eight, nine railways and roads and air, air corridors to link China to Europe, bypassing Russia. And they've been doing that for years. So that tells you where China is headwise, headspace-wise, concerning, concerning Russia. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So that, of course, would be a concern for Putin if he moves into Kazakhstan, the response from China, which would be not as it has been uh, in their reaction to what's happening in the Ukraine. Well, I don't think that they would wade into it. China doesn't have to and doesn't want to. Uh, and also, I might say they've spent billions, China has spent billions investing in Kazakhstan. It also spent billions investing in Ukraine. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Lots of infrastructure in Ukraine, which is being blown up in front of their eyes right now. So, you know, China, I think China is not frightened of, of if you want my guess as to why China has built up a very large military. It's not to take over Taiwan, and it's not because they think the Americans are going to invade them. I think they're frightened of Russia. And I think that if Russia consists in, in doing what it's doing, it'll be weakened, it is being weakened, and then Siberia is in play, and China will be there for Manchuria for sure. So in the midst of all of this, we come turn our attention back to Canada and the decision to release these turbines that were being uh, had 
uh, maintenance work being done on them in Montreal to send them back to Russia because of some misguided notion that somehow we were going to be able to protect uh, the flow of natural gas into Europe to, to meet the demand for this, uh, this uh, fall and winter. Uh, and yet, as soon as the uh, turbines are clear of Canadian control, uh, the, the Russian gas company says, no, we can't guarantee that we're going to be able to supply that. Have we been played for suckers in Canada? Yeah, 100%. We were gamed. And by the way, Germans were gamed and the Americans were gamed. And they were the ones pressuring Canada to do this. But here's what I think is egregious about the Canadian <coughs> decision to give up a turbine. Canada is a resource-rich country. We have more experts on turbines and pipelines and how they work and compressors, maybe than any country in the world except the United States. Did anybody not in our government know that that turbine was a joke? It wasn't even necessary. Why didn't they say to the Americans or the Germans, do you realize it's one of six? It's not needed. I mean, this was a weenie government with no absolutely no foreign policy smarts or any resource engineering business smarts. We got gamed. We got game big. And you know what? That pipeline will shut down again. He's warned it. He's playing it. And you know, I, the Germans and the Americans have to stop letting him do this. This was a test of resolve. And you know what? We failed. So there's going to be another blackmail attempt coming. Well, we sure. also have to we also have to remember that we are a neighbor of Russia. Our northern neighbor is Russia. Do we need to be paying closer attention to what we're doing in the Arctic? We've never paid attention to the Arctic. The Arctic is empty. It is really Canada's in name only. We don't have a navy that can even has an icebreaker. We don't have we have four submarines, none of which they're all old and none of which can last under an ice, ice, ice flow for more than a few hours. We don't have a naval base. We don't have a military base. Look, what happened in December, and I wrote about it, just after the election, the Pentagon took over the Arctic. A mm -hmm. deal was force-fed to the Department of National Defense and said, you will do this, and we will do the monitoring, and we will do the surveillance, because you haven't. But we will do it all. And by the way, there's a bill for 40 billion for your part of the first part of it, what, what we have to pay for. It, there'll so, be more money. You know, we're, we're, we're a laggard in NATO. We don't pay enough for NATO. We don't do enough in NORAD. And now the, the Arctic, thank goodness, is being patrolled by, by the Pentagon. So I don't think we have to worry about Russia. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So when we take a look at uh, energy security and how it's been, uh, you know, unsettled and fractured in Europe, have we done ourselves a disservice in Canada by not continuing to move forward in the development of our own energy sector? We do it because we, we do it. We, we punish our resource sector because we have a government full of young people who have no experience in the real world and who have swallowed the religion of climate change and Armageddon, climate change, Armageddon, sorry, climate Armageddon. Climate change, I don't think anybody disputes, but it's a matter of Armageddon. And here's the other thing that really annoys me. 
everything that Greta Thunberg and the UN scientists say about resource, you know, our government slavishly follows without considering the following. Canada has 318 billion trees, second biggest trees in the world. Trees eat carbon dioxide and emit oxygen. So does farmland. We got lots of that. So does muskeg. We got more of that. So Canada is one of the biggest carbon sinks on the planet, much bigger than the Amazon, 10, 15 times more. And we don't fight when they're, when they're evaluating the net emissions of a country. We haven't said, oh, by the way, we don't have any emissions if you take into consideration that we're a carbon sink. We haven't done that. The United States tried and the UN said, oh, no, no, no. This is, this, is, this is a government that's not protecting the best interests of Canadians and, I would say, our environment and our economy. So when you take a look at the situation that we find ourselves in now uh, versus a year ago, what's your sense of how the world is going to look six to 12 months from now? Because it's been a dramatic change from 12 months ago. Well, tell me how the war is going to be in six to 12 months, and I'll tell you how the world is going to be. Everybody's on pause. Everybody's on pause. Russia has, has weaponized his, his, its war into creating recession, inflation around the world. Uh, you know, he's, this is what he's doing, and he's hoping that the West gets fatigued and caves in and gives him Ukraine. But, of course, it won't stop with just Ukraine this is not a person you can negotiate with so you tell me you tell me if 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 in six months time the ukrainians have enough weapons to push these buggers across the border again and there's a ceasefire that's one thing i think that's very unlikely uh in 12 months maybe um and then there's always the possibility that he escalates it to a to an unthinkable level if he thinks he's losing. So, you know, the world is very uncertain. Uh, that's nothing new. Uh, I would say that in historical terms, we're probably about where the world was in 1938, coming out of, you know, wow. a recession and depression and on the verge of a war with a, with a monster. Unfortunately, I think you're you're correct about that, and I'm going to be watching uh, your uh, newsletters uh, as they come out every week. And I encourage anybody who's watching to subscribe to uh, your insightful dispatches. Uh, it's remarkable what you are focusing in on that nobody else is paying attention to. I thank you for the great work that you're doing, and thank you also for joining me here for this interview. Thank you for the time. Bye bye. Bye-bye.